Hello, lifers. This is Heather Drew, and this is the Life in the Whirlwind podcast. Today is episode 45, and this episode is called Protecting the Sacred Flame. First of all, I want to say a big thank you to someone. Uh, a woman named Janine, who donated, who is the first official uh, donator to this podcast. So if you don't know this, I have set up on my website, lifeinthewhirlwind.com, a way to be a giver. And if you like what you hear, you can click on the button that says give at the top right corner, and you are able to securely donate to this project. I put it out there just to see what would happen. And uh, no hits, no hits, nothing. You know, we're on week 45 of this official project, publicly speaking. Uh, And lo and behold, I get an email this week saying I have a donation. So my goodness, I am so grateful. Uh, I'm speechless to some degree, actually. Well, I'm obviously not speechless, but I'm so grateful to you, Janine, for this gift and that you believe in this project is it's a real gift that's the biggest gift of all and thank you for putting your money where your heart is i do appreciate that so much um if you would like to give if you love this podcast and are willing to show it with a donation that's the way life in the whirlwind.com uh right corner upper right hand corner thank you janine Okay, back to this. Protecting the sacred flame. Okay, so this episode comes out of a place. uh, People have for years asked me about self-care. So I am a big believer in self-care. I teach on it. I speak on it. Um, I, I... I'm an advocate of it in my life. And so I have a lot of people who say, what is self-care exactly? And if you're in the helping profession, it is part of your ethical mandate to practice some kind of self-care, that it's actually in uh, the American Counseling Association ethics codes that you code that you practice self-care. So it's been a big question, you know, in the field, it's so important in in the counseling field and the social work field. There's so much burnout. There's so much compassion, fatigue, uh, vicarious trauma, things like that. So what is self-care? I get this question all the time. And a lot of this project is about self-care for helping professionals, for caretakers of any kind, whether you're a stay-at-home parent, whether you are a caring for someone who's dying, Uh, you're a bereavement counselor, you're a a licensed professional counselor, you're a a minister of some kind, a spiritual director or a leader of some kind, a yoga teacher. All of these things are important helping professions that require something to be put back in. So I think self-care is often seen as something that we do. 
we do self-care activities. But we've been talking about the self quite a bit for the last several weeks, several episodes. In case you're just joining us, we're in the middle of a series here on unity uh, with the self and with others. And we've been talking about this surface self versus deeper self. And often I think self-care activities tend to reside with the surface self. Uh, We don't really let it or we don't really know how to let it impact the deeper self. So I think we see a lot of people do activities that impact the self, the surface self, but not the deeper self. One of my, one of the books that I've read that have impacted my view of self-care significantly, and this is actually a book that, you know, if, if there were like a thousand dots on a piece of paper, that somehow we're all connected, it would become this podcast. One of those dots, at least, would be the book Care for the Soul by Thomas More. Um, it really cha- it changed my view of what self-care was. And, they, and Thomas More kind of talks about uh, care for the soul being real self-care. Like care for the soul, uh, the soul is the deeper self. And how to identify it, how to care for it, how to engage it, how to, you know, feed it nourishment kind of thing. So that's a great book. If you're wanting to dig into this category deeper, if you want to dig into soul care, I would recommend that book, Care for the Soul by Thomas More. I love that man very much. Uh, One of my favorite writers, in case you haven't noticed. But um, here's the thing. I think that each thing we do has at least two components. And I'm talking about everything, not just self-care activities, not just, you know, soul care stuff. But everything we do has at least two components. One is the observable act itself, like the thing that we're doing. And the second component is the animating energy behind it. Now I'm going to do an entire episode on this. It's just waiting. I have this list of episode titles that are just waiting in the wings and I kind of look through it and feel it out every week. (laughs) Right now we're in a series, so I have to keep moving in the series. But one day I'm going to do something called a form and spirit because that's going to, that's going to happen. So there's two components, the observable thing itself, the act itself, and the animating energy or the spirit behind the act. Basically, it's really the difference between what we do and how we do it. And a lot of things that we do, particularly I want to speak to those who are aware of the soul and seeking to minister and serve to the souls of others, there are a lot of things that we do that are soul-tiring, that are soul draining to some degree, or they take a toll on us. So soul care, inevitably then, uh, or we like to call it self-care, must get deep in there. It really needs to get go beyond uh, activity, like the observable outside. Um, and it needs to serve something deeper than the surface self. 
So, uh, I have a spiritual teacher and I know that some of you share this person in common, common with me. So some of you will know who I'm talking about when I say this, but, um, this week, this spiritual teacher was teaching on boundaries. Boundaries are a very popular topic of conversation. Um, a lot of people talk about boundaries and, you know, setting them up and how important they are. And there's, you know, a great book on it from probably the 1990s, I want to say, by uh, doctors Cloud and Townsend. But um, boundaries, my, this spiritual teacher of mine spoke about boundaries this week, taught about boundaries this week. And what's funny about this teacher and me and I'm not just making this up, I swear. We are weirdly on, we tend to be on the same wavelength many weeks. So I started writing this episode two or three weeks ago because we're doing this series. And so I wanted to write out like here, I'm going to do this and this and then this so that I knew where we were going. And uh, when this teacher spoke on <laughs> boundaries, it was kind of freaky, actually. So for some of you, it's pretty cool, actually. But uh, for some of you, some of this may sound familiar. Uh, no plagiarism involved here. So, okay, I'm going to give you a little, I want to give you a little image for you, a little image for you to consider. Uh, I often do this exercise with my students. I teach at a graduate school. I teach counseling students. And I often do this exercise, this visual exercise. So I want you to imagine for a moment there are four unlit candles on a table of some kind. And imagine that I light a match and I light one of the candles, just one of the four. Now, I want you to think through this image. What is different now that one candle has been lit? Uh, one of the candles has a flame. Three of the candles do not. So then what if I take that first candle and I light a second candle with the flame from the first candle? What happens? Does the first candle change? Not really. Does the second candle change? Yes, it is now lit. Does the third and do the third and fourth candles change? No, though the whole area is a little bit brighter, right? Say you take the second candle and light the third candle, and then you take the third candle and light the fourth candle. You see maybe where I'm going here. Nothing changes about the original candle. The more candles that are lit, Nothing actually is taken from the first candle. Uh, it stays the same, but the other candles become lit as well. Nothing is subtracted, uh, except the whole area is made a little brighter. So, what does this mean <laughs> exactly? I think what's interesting about this is I think 
that in this analogy, in this exercise, this candle, this flame, it represents the divine image that we bear. And it is this thing that sometimes other people need a little bit of help finding. Does fire exist, whether a candle is lit or not? Of course, but it has to have a source, right? And when the source lights the candle, then that candle has the image of the source, right? So this analogy shows you that uh, we can actually, by losing nothing, we can actually show other people, uh, we can light their candles, we can add light, we can add, we can show them this divine image and help them to bear it. I think this is a lot of what we do in helping professions. I think this is what we try to do when we uh, try to do justice and love and uh, embody mercy and kindness in the world. And not just trite thing versions of these things, but really, I mean, true humanity, serving true humanity type of stuff. But the thing is, is here's, here's the reality, is that the flame has nearly limitless potential. This first flame could light an infinite number of candles, and it would just light up more and more space, the more candles that are lit. And this one candle would not be changed. Nothing would be taken from it, this flame. But here's the reality about all this. Um, if this analogy shows us what it is like to, uh, be helpers in the world, to be kind humans in the world, uh, to help others find their divine image, this flame must be called sacred and this flame must be protected. When I record these episodes, I always have a candle burning. Always. It reminds me that we are on sacred ground together. That's part of why. But it also reminds me that there is this deeper thing going on that is always true of me and is always true of you. That this divine image is available and exists right here, right now. And so when I light this candle, it's, I hope you can sort of imagine this, but it's reminding me of, of what's really going on in the world, in me, in you. So the last few weeks we've talked about the self and unity with the self. A flame is this contained, extraordinary, beautiful, fierce reality with fierce, unimaginable potential. This element that sort of holds within itself limitless potential. And 
also, a firm wind can make it invisible to us. Good old Thomas More. Let's come back to him for a second. He, uh, in his book, The Reenchantment of Everyday Life, that's a book that I've quoted on this podcast before. He says, walk away from activities if your soul requires it. There are so many activities, events, realities, people who are super interested in blowing out our candles, in extinguishing the flame. This awareness of divine image, so interested in that. And I wish I could say that it was less powerful and true, but it is. It's super powerful and it's super true. Um, one of my other, my other spiritual teacher besides Thomas More, my other spiritual teacher that I was talking about before uh, says, only stay in a place, a community, as long as you can still hold on to yourself. Only stay as long as you can hold on to yourself. This candle, this flame. So, okay, here's here's the thing about walking away from activities if your soul requires it and only staying in a place as long as you can hold on to yourself. Can these decisions be made impulsively to leave activities and communities that feel like you're losing yourself or feel like the soul requires it? Absolutely. Oftentimes we actually uh, tell ourselves, we sort of deceive ourselves that something is worse than it is or has intentions that are different than what we know to be true somewhere deep inside. And often we run from things and people and activities and experiences that make our soul more visible to us, but that can be very alarming and very unpleasant at first, especially. Because this this seeing the soul, like seeing the true self, it is very unknown and it is very powerful and it can feel dangerous. It can set off alarm bells like like we talked about this the other the other week a couple of weeks ago the surface self is going to fight tooth and nail to live it wants to be protected and the deeper self being discovered can feel very dangerous so i think that when i say these things walk away from activities if your soul requires it or stay only in a only stay in a place as long as you can hold on to yourself. Sometimes we can deceive ourselves into believing that that's true. But what's really happening is that finding the deeper self is starting to feel dangerous. And so we say, "Oh no, this is the soul. Ooh, the soul doesn't like this. I'm going to leave." It's when actually what's happening is the surface self really doesn't like what's happening, and is fighting for its life. So. What do we need to do? We just need to acknowledge the difference between the surface self and the deeper self on a pretty regular basis. But that was another episode. We already went there and did that, right? You're still walking through that invitation, I hope. So this internal sacred flame, back on the track, this internal sacred flame in you, 
It's this part of you that is the truest thing about you. It is the realest part of you, and it's realer than any part that appears on the outside. Uh, as, as I like to say, it's realer than real. It's the you that has already been transformed and is waiting for you to come along for the ride. That's what this flame is. That's what this internal sacred flame, this deeper self is. And it needs protecting. It needs shelter. Okay, so how do we protect these things? How do we protect a sacred flame? Great question. So glad you asked. So I think there's probably a, a bunch of re, a bunch of ways, but um, it's really funny. My tea bag, I have. I drink this yogi tea that's from, uh, you know, it's sort of like a herbal tea and the the tea bag little tag always has a little saying on it and this says spread the light be the lighthouse <laughs> that's just so crazy i just noticed that that's there you go serendipitous there are two ways <laughs> i'm about to say what my tea bag just said in different words there are two i think main ways that we can protect the flame the sacred flame one is intentional community and two are practices of mm, practices. Let's just say that for now. Teaser. I'll, I'm not going to go into the details yet. So let's start with communities that are intentional. Um, community is another pop word. It's one of those words that I don't use very often because everybody has a different meaning in their head or they have like an image that comes up for them of how it either has gone poorly or well in their lives. So try to ignore that word and think more about intentional people. Um, maybe, okay, think through a collection of people and maybe they are in the same general location. Maybe they're disjointed. They're a disjointed collection. They live in different places or they don't live close to you. I don't know what that looks like. But whatever it is, it's this. It's a collective of people who, A, see the flame in you. They are willing to see it. They are willing to see you and this sacred image in you, this divine image. B, they are very invested in it burning continuously. C, they are very interested in their own flame burning continuously and d they can help you relate this flame when it goes out in you we're going to talk about that in just a second but here's the here's the thing all of this requires an intentional and mutual or reciprocal if you will bearing witness of one another when i say being seen uh, this is the most, mm, this is when, when we say being known, we're talking about the deeper self. We're talking about like intimate knowledge. We're talking about, uh, really being seen, seeing past what's on the surface, right? So 
in this reciprocal bearing witness, this intentional mutual community type thing, collective of people, you have to, here's what's required of you. You have to let them actually see you and let them participate in what they see. Um, there's a great quote. I think I actually shared it last week. I forget, or at least I maybe put it on my Instagram page with a Mary Cassatt picture, but the Mary Cassatt painting from last week, but it says something like trust is, uh, making your greatest vulnerabilities subject to another's actions, something like that. So we're letting them see us. You're letting people see you, this collective of people, and they are participating. You're allowing them to participate in what they see. Also, you are also allowed, the reciprocal nature of this is that you are allowed to see them back. It's not just a one-way street uh, or like a two-way mirror. You know how two-way mirrors work? It's like in those in the police stations. You one If you're in a room on the one side, you can be seen but not see the other person on the other side. Uh, that's not what this is about. This is clear glass, or this is no glass at all. This is eyeball to eyeball. Um, so that's what maybe a collection of this intentional group of people looks like. I want to give you a little side note here. I think that sometimes we can get into relationships that feel like it's going to be this. And at some point, we realize it isn't safe anymore, or um, it isn't going quite the way we thought it was. This person isn't quite who we thought they were. They're maybe not as safe as we thought they were. In which case, you have to go back and do that examining thing again. Is this my deeper self talking about danger? Or is this my surface self saying, danger, run away? Because... Um, if it's the deeper self talking and saying this person isn't safe, uh, sometimes it means you walk away or you give more limited access. You limit a person's access to you, to seeing you and that reciprocity. Just something to think about. Uh, part of the boundaries conversation, right? But intentional collection of people is the first way of how we protect the flame. Secondly, practices. So what kinds of things really uh, still you and move you at the same time? I don't know. Do you know what I mean by that? Does that make any sense? Um, like, is there some, so I'll give you an example for me. Uh, actually watching the flame of this candle that's sitting right in front of me, it stills me and it moves me at the same time. It's like I feel so still and at peace and yet I feel like something is calling me forward at the same time. Like something, the larger thing that is behind this candle like the larger thing, that larger element of fire that's behind this tiny little flicker is pulling me into an expanded 
experience. Like it's bigger than what I see. So what are some, what are some things that really do that for you? What are some practices? What are some, uh, decisions that lead you to that kind of a place? Some of you, it's going to be hiking in the woods. Some of you, it's going to be looking at a candle. Some of you, it's going to be burning incense or something. Um, see, watching a sunrise or a sunset, listening to birds, uh, playing music, listening to music, like playing the piano or playing the violin or the something, um, or listening to music. You know, it's all these different things. There are all these practices that are available to us. Eating food, smelling the food, tasting the food, like being very intentional. Um, for some of us, it's, you know, there's so many options. But um, I want to take you, I want to take you, tell you a story for a second. Um, it won't take long. It'll only take probably a couple minutes. But I want to tell, I want to take this minute to tell you this story that is really important to me. And this is a story that may be familiar to some of you, but it's, um, it's part of why this podcast exists, to be honest. It's part of why I began this podcast. Um, this story impacted me in a deep way. So this is a story, a story of Elijah, who's a prophet uh, of Israel, and he is a prophet in the Bible as we know it. And I want to give you a little summary of, so I'm looking at in the Bible, the book, first Kings and the 18th chapter is really the lead up to this. It's a very exciting, it's like reading, a, it's like it, in play version, this would be amazing to watch. But Elijah is basically the last remaining prophet of the eternal one, uh, Yahweh. So he's the last remaining prophet and he gets himself into a little bit of trouble. He is doing amazing things, but people are not liking it. And there's kind of an intense scene where he's proving the existence of God and it's very intense and it ticks a lot of people off. And a lot of people die, actually. It's very violent and interesting, but it's fascinating. It's super fascinating. So anyway, all this happens leading up to this point. And then uh, Elijah has this moment where he goes up to this mountain. Like all this drama has ensued. It was like really intense, like straight out of a Lord of the Rings scene. I'm not kidding. Like it was, it's that kind of scene. And he's like on the top of this mountain. Elijah has like climbed this mountain, of course, because that's what people do after major events and they need to go contemplate things. He bows down on the ground and it says he places his head between his knees. And, and then he has this whole moment where he says to his servant, like, go look at the sea. And the servant's like, okay. And he goes and he looks and nothing's there. And he comes back and he's like, I did it. Nothing. I didn't see anything. And Elijah's like, no, no, go back again. And then seven, they, they do this back and forth seven times. Finally, look in the direction of the sea. And so the servant finally does it the seventh time. And he sees this tiny little cloud. And then 
the tiny little cloud quickly becomes a torrential downpour. This is all lead up to what I'm about to tell you. The sky becomes dark, massive clouds. You know what I'm talking about. You've seen this. I always say, <laughs> whenever this happens, whenever a big storm like this happens, I usually say something like, uh, like Voldemort's coming or something. Anyway, <laughs> but um, there's this moment where he gets kind of this burst of strength, Elijah, and he starts sprinting to a different place to a different town. And he's basically kind of, he gets to this other town and this woman, Jezebel, who I won't go into details about her, but she's a very fierce person, very interesting person. She is enraged at him, at Elijah, for the shenanigans that he caused in the previous chapter. And she says, may the gods kill me and worse if I haven't killed you the way you killed their priests by this time tomorrow, your end is near, Elijah. And so it says, I'm going to read you this kind of quickly, but this is the voice translation, by the way, of First Kings 19. Terrified, Elijah runs quickly for his life. He travels the length of Israel in one day, and then he arrives in this other town. I'm going to skip ahead a little bit. So he, he feels finished. He's sitting beneath a tree and he basically prays that his life will end. He is finished. He's done. He's toast. He's spent. And he asks God, will you please end my life right here, right now, as quickly as possible? Uh, and basically God sends, he falls asleep. Elijah falls asleep. He lays himself under this tree and enters into a deep sleep, it says. Of course he did. He's been sprinting across the entire land of Israel. And uh, he lays himself down. He falls into a deep sleep. And while he's sleeping, this sort of message comes to him. And it says, this messenger says, get up and eat. And so Elijah wakes up and he finds this bread sitting over some charcoal, like a little fire cooking. And he eats it. And then he drinks water. And then he lays back down. And then, uh, again, this messenger sort of visits him and says, get up and eat. And so he does it again and he gets all this nourishment and then he gets all this energy. And then he goes for 40 days and finds this mountain cave and he goes and he hides in this cave. And it says, when he arrives in this cave, he, at this mountain, he walks into a cave and rests for the night. Okay, that's where we're led to this point. I'm now going to read word for word what this says. The Eternal One says to him, Why are you here, Elijah? And what is it that you desire? And then Elijah says, You know what I want. You know exactly what I want. I want to defend this. I want to defend your name. I want to, I'm devoted to you. Um, I'm, I will covenant with you to do anything. Like this is all I care about and your name and your name being protected. And that's what I'm devoted to. And God says, leave the cave, leave this cave and go stand on the mountainside in my presence. P.S. This is the same mountain where the 10 commandments were delivered. That's where he is. And it says the eternal passed by him. The mighty wind separated the mountains and crumbled every stone 
before the Eternal. This was not a divine wind, for the Eternal was not within this wind. After the wind passed through, an earthquake shook the earth. This was not a divine earthquake, for the Eternal was not within the earthquake. After the earthquake was over, there was a fire. This was not a divine fire, for the eternal one was not within this fire. It's kind of like Elijah's waiting. He's like wanting God to show up, right? But all these things keep happening. They're like super dramatic, super crazy weather, and God is in none of it. After the fire died out, there was nothing but the sound of a calm breeze. And through this breeze, a gentle, quiet voice entered into Elijah's ears. He covered his face with his cloak, and he went to the mouth of the cave. Suddenly, Elijah was surprised. The Eternal One said, Why are you here, Elijah, and what is it that you desire? He goes to the cave This question comes up, why are you here and what do you want? And he doesn't answer, he answers it in this funny way. And then God's like, go outside. And then he has all of this crazy weather. All this crazy stuff happens. God is in none of it. And then stillness comes. And then he goes back, he goes into this stillness. And God says, why are you here and what do you want? The eternal divine one is pointing Elijah back to the flame. And this can only be received by Elijah when he has to get incredibly still. It's kind of like if you make a fist and then you let it go, you feel the relaxation so much more than if you were to just be still the whole time. It's like all of this craziness leading up to this point of stillness makes that stillness feel extra sweet and extra it makes Elijah extra receptive okay all that I guess that was more than a couple minutes I'm not sorry all that to lead to this point of invitation how can you get still how can you receive this question why are you here and what do you want What is your desire? What are you hungry and thirsty for? What is your soul wanting? Get still and ask that question. Let the eternal ask you that question. And get community, an intentional collection of people who really know you and are going to be co-protectors of your flame and their own flame. Okay, and here's my blessing to you this week. This whole flame thing is beautiful. It's a beautiful analogy. The only problem is uh, with a flame analogy is that your flame can never be blown out. No matter how hard the wind is blowing, this is your life, even in the whirlwind. And nothing can take that away from you. So go looking for it. Go find it. Go into the stillness and find this beautiful flame 
that has been burning before you could have ever possibly been aware of it and be at peace. Take great care. By the light of common day Things look different Than they did in the starlit dark The dark was warm and clouded It was easy to deceive yourself
have to go faithfully each day and open up your head some way somehow and what will come in answer some strong and gentle dancer will carry a song through your door some great lifting force of light will come to battle 